Welcome to From the Median, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Welcome back. I am Molly Smith, your host. I want to remind you all that our program is available for download. You can do so by going to our website from themedian.org. Listeners, as always, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining. Again, I know I I do this every single, pretty well every time you join me. But again, I'm trying to make sure that everybody gets these programs and you are able to pass them on. So go to our podcasts. Go make sure that you download this to your podcast app. And you are definitely going to want to download this one. I have a brand new guest joining me, someone who is very well known across America. Dr. Carol Swain is with us, and I'm just loving the fact that she was able to be here with us on the program. She was born into abject poverty in rural Virginia. Dr. Swain has earned five degrees and obtained early tenure at Princeton and full professorship at Vanderbilt University, where she was a professor of political science and a professor of law. Today, she is a sought-after cable news contributor, prominent national speaker, and best-selling author. She, in addition to three presidential appointments, Carol is the former Distinguished Senior Fellow of Constitutional Studies with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, having also served on the Tennessee Advisory Committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the 1776 Commission. Carol is the founder and CEO of Carol Swain Enterprises, Real Unity Training Solutions, Your Life Story for Defendants, and her nonprofit, Be the People. She is a mother, grandmother, and great grandmother, and she resides in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the program, Carol. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. And I'd like to say to your audience if you're around my age, don't ever retire. There's no place for retirement. It's an all hands on deck moment in America. Oh, I love that because that, that's where I'm, I'm not quite a great grandmother yet, but I'm a grandmother and my oldest granddaughter is 25. And it's one of those things where I don't know what I would do with myself, number one, but there's so much work to do, Dr. Swain. So much work to do. I know. And, and just these young people, like when I see the children and sometimes when I speak, uh, I see young people in the audience paying attention, attention. And so I always, uh, uh, allow the young people, the kids, to ask the first question. And they ask great questions, really great questions. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they're learning from the wisdom that, that you are able to give them, too. And I think that's so important. And I think that's one of the things that um, we, you're, you're so right. I love that you started off with that because I think you, everybody has a mission. It doesn't matter what age you are. I've just said goodbye to a, a final goodbye to a very dear friend of mine who was 94. And my goodness, up until the last year, she was still going at it strong. <laughs> It's like wonderful, sir. Absolutely. So I want to talk tonight, today, about your your the, your your book that you've just written. It's called The Adversity of Diversity. And folks, you can get it at uh, Barnes and Nobles on uh, um, Amazon, wherever you just go there and put in the, the adversity of diversity, and, and it'll, it should be popping up. But it's it's a book that you wrote about how the Supreme Court's decision to remove race from college admission criteria will doom diversity programs. Wow. 
That's that's an amazing amazing statement. It catches you right there in in right at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about the fact that you, one of the things that you, you're looking at is um, what are we going to gain as as a reader when we read this book? Well, first of all, I want you and the listeners to know that this book was ninety percent written before the Supreme Court issued its decision in late June, striking down race-based college and university admissions. And so I took a gamble because had they not had the courage to strike down uh, the race-based admissions, which clearly violated the Constitution and its Equal Protection Clause, then the book would have had to have been rewritten and the title would have been something like How the Supreme Court Missed an Opportunity <laughs> to Bring America Together. Uh, I don't know what the title would have been, but it would have been a different book. And th- the ideas that are presented in the adversity of diversity, I've had them for a long time. In fact, about five years ago, I started writing a book, Why Diversity Training is All Wrong. And so I have felt for a long time that the people that push diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, that those programs and policies uh, uh, accomplish the opposite of what they say it is supposed to do and that it was counterproductive and harmful in many ways. And it is a layer imposed on top of, uh, of affirmative action and CRT, critical race theory, that was so aggressive in its blatant discrimination against Asians and against whites, against men in competition with women, against heterosexuals in competition with homosexuals. I say in competition because it's all conflict-based, Marxist-rooted, that pits one group against another. And so I felt that I had to write the book, but it really is the next logical book after I completed two years ago Black Eye for America, how critical race theory is burning down the house. And so critical race theory was all over the news, what was happening in K through 12 education with the agenda that was being pushed. And it was critical race theory, and then it moved on to transgenderism, but the left has been very aggressive. So how do we, in your book, you, you, you're obviously talking about um you know, you're taking this from a perspective that it's you. You personally have have you personally experienced some of what's happened, the negative fallout from affirmative action, from from, from you know from this race based idea ideology that's coming through. You you were able to do almost the impossible, but it was possible. This has to just drive you nuts. The fact that this is this is what's happening. Well, you know, one of the uh, things that readers will get some of the information from reading the book is that I sort of give a history of of uh, the civil rights movement and affirmative action. And most people don't know that affirmative action is not a law that was passed by both houses of Congress and signed by a president. Uh, it was a series of executive orders that started with uh, President Kennedy in the 19, early 1960s, and then Johnson issued his executive orders, and then Richard Nixon. And it was Republican Richard Nixon that pretty much instituted quotas, which the Supreme Court struck down in 1974 or 1975, around that time. And so what the uh, uh, proponents did was, instead of calling it 
quotas, they called it goals and timetables, but affirmative action itself was not a piece of legislation that was signed into law. Now, what was a piece of legislation was the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, uh, sex, and religion. That was the law of the land and was later expanded through other executive orders to include disabled people. And now I believe they have uh, sexual orientation included. But uh, that is very different from the executive orders that started affirmative action. So that is something that I want people to know. And and when I came of age, uh, I, was, I was born in 54, but in the early 70s, affirmative action, you know, by then it had expanded from just being a black-white issue. I believe they had about five different groups, many immigrant groups included under affirmative action. And now the only people who are not covered by affirmative action are healthy white males. And it's like um, whites through diversity, equity, and inclusion, they have been singled out because they are white. Uh, because DEI is closely related to critical race theory that argues that white people uh, have racism, you know, in that DNA, that all white people are racist, that all, that only white people have to be anti-racist. That, um, is something that, you know, came about much later and it always was a violation of the Civil Rights Act. And I would say that whites are are discriminated against because they are white and Asians are discriminated against because they are successful. Wow. You know, you look at this, it, it's happened very quickly. I, why do you think this has happened so fast? I disagree that it happened quickly. I would say I that no, uh, it was happening for a long time. But in the 1960s, when we had the civil rights movement, it was the right thing to do because mm-hmm. there was discrimination against blacks uh, and against women, blacks because of their race and women just because our society did not treat men and women equally. And they still don't look at the uh, the um, men and women's sports. Look at how women are treated today. So we still have a problem with women. But uh, what happened was with Lyndon Johnson, he gave his famous 1960. Five Howard University commencement speech where he used the imagery of a shackled runner and and stated that you don't take the runner the shackled to the uh, front of the race and and tell him to you know and believe that you're fair that he can compete with the rest if he has shackles and so the legacy of slavery and the Jim Crowism that was the shackles he was the one that put in preferential treatment but I would like for listeners to know that the Black Civil Rights Movement never saw it, never asked for preferential treatment. They wanted non-discrimination. They wanted white people to stop discriminating against the ones that were to get out of the way. And there were black successes getting admitted to colleges and universities that did not discriminate on the basis of race ever since slavery ended. In fact, Harvard University uh, admitted its first black in 1869 and in 1933, I believe, W.E.B. Du Bois, du Bois got his um, Ph.D. from Harvard. Harvard schools in New England that did not discriminate always had black alumni. And in the 1950s, blacks loved the civil service test. Uh, and that's how they got so much prosperity in Washington, D.C., 
because the job went to the person that had the highest scores. And so blacks wanted an end to discrimination. They were not asking for preferential treatment. It was white male elite, uh, sort of like the ones that you see in Washington today, thinking that they know what's best for everyone else. That is their system. They put it in place. You know that, uh, uh, my goodness, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas has written his, you know, he wrote a book too, very similar background to you, I think, in, in the fact that he grew up in a very, in a poverty uh, situation and yet was able to do the, the most incredible things just by the fact that, the, you know, he, he was, he didn't need all of these systems in place in order to be able to get to where he got to. And it's exactly the same thing with you. It's, it's, it's amazing to see the ingenuity of, of of the of the human condition and the human person because i think that's that is america america has been built on this idea of you know opening their doors to allowing people to you know if you come in obviously I, i'm for people coming in legally but um allowing people to make the make the grade because it's there for you to make the grade. It's not being handed to you. So it, it's an amazing, this book is, is going to be, I, I'm hoping will, will really help people to see this, see, see where the danger is in all of these programs that we've put in place. What do you hope that people are going to get out of the book? Well, for, first, uh, Molly, I want to say that how Clarence Thomas and people like me benefited, we benefited, I would say mostly from the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Act because it did prohibit discrimination, but it also required that jobs be advertised across the country. That benefited benefited whites too because it eliminated the old boys network where people Mm -hmm. filled job vacancies just by calling their friends. It made opportunities known across the country. So everyone benefited from that. But I benefited... um, especially after I had gone through the community college where I got my first degree from the outreach and the recruitment, because there was a time when diversity meant that recruiters from corporations and colleges and universities went to, uh, to minority neighborhoods or wherever the, these so-called or what the left calls underserved populations, they went there and they made them aware of job opportunities and they, sought the most talented. Mm-hmm. You, They opened doors for the most talented. And so you had an equal opportunity to succeed or to fail. Equal opportunity and equity are not the same thing. So I uh, was able to start at a community college, get my first degree, and then go on to better colleges and universities. And I graduated with my four-year degree, magna cum laude, where I work at nights and weekends at a community college library. And uh, and because I graduated with honors and awards for my undergraduate school, I was able to get into graduate school and to get uh, fellowships. And that's how I was able to be successful. But growing up as a child in poverty, I did not know that uh, you could go to college if you were poor. I didn't know about scholarships, but I benefited from the goodwill of people mm-hmm. who wanted to see talented minorities succeed, the outreach, the non-discrimination, but I could have failed. And I saw lots of people fail. They got their foot in the door, but they were not able to stay there. Equity guarantees equal outcomes. And so they lower the standards so low that people can't fail unless they just totally don't show up. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and this is the you know this is the fight we've had in the last couple of years in the school systems, and I I I have personally been involved in this because I I watch this incredible school system that we that we've had in America, and it's just it's you you it's heartbreaking to see the thing just collapsing because of this idea of of equity, the, the, their idea of equity, which is not really uh, the whole system starts collapsing because you got to keep as you say you got to keep lowering those standards and lowering those standards in order to be able to have what the, you know what is considered by someone out there not necessarily by the you know uh, the human condition as i say it's just well we've got to have this number of the, those people and that number of these people and and this right. is it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous well, you know what's ridiculous is that it hurts racial and ethnic minorities so much because when the left says that ra- that math is racist that tells every black child that no matter how hard they try that because they belong to a particular group, then they're not supposed to do well in math. And there's so much racism that undergirds the um, progressive politics. And a lot of this racism involves resegregation, segregated uh, spaces within public schools, within our colleges and universities, supporting separate dorms, separate class sections, separate um, segregation. And the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibited that. But my book, The Adversity of Diversity, has uh, chapters on the conundrum that DEI poses for corporations, because actually uh, bringing in a diversity, equity, inclusion officer is the beginning of your troubles because they encourage uh, employees to segregate themselves into affinity groups, those affinity groups become gripe sessions. When they bring in sensitivity trainers, uh, often they will have the white people meet with them separately, or if they're in the same room with minorities, they tell the white people, you keep your mouth shut. And if someone uh, dare say that they are not racist or they're not guilty for the the sins of their ancestors, that person is shot down and shamed. And with the racial and ethnic minorities, many of them may have been happy with their jobs, after they have a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer come in or do the training, they begin to wonder if they should be further along, if they have been discriminated against, if they would be the supervisor or the CEO if it were not for their race. And so when those people come in, they create division and conflict. And so in one chapter, we talk about that. There's another chapter uh, uh, that we look at George Floyd's death and how that was used by the left. I mean, to them, it was like never let a good crisis go to waste. And so they exploited George Floyd's death to get billions of dollars for organizations like Black Lives Matter and groups like Antifa that they had a boondoggle. And we know that a lot of the money given to Black Lives Matter that was supposed to improve black lives ended up buying houses for the people who founded the organization. And Black Lives Matter, or the national organization, has been sued by the chapters because they kept the money for themselves. And I read somewhere that they were going bankrupt. And the adversity of diversity ends, you know, with this positive message that we can have diversity without discrimination, that we can return to the intent and goal of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was to end discrimination. We can have e pluribus unum, 
our, our national motto, out of many, one. And we can uh, learn about history. There's nothing wrong about uh, learning about discrimination laws and why uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, but it should not be done in a way that singles out any particular group, accuses them, shames them, and bullies them. And corporations and organizations need to get back on mission. Their mission is not social engineering or to change the world. They were founded by a vision of someone out there. The job of all the employees should be to work as a team together, uh, fulfilling the mission of the organization, and they can be unified. And I believe that we would have a better America if we ended uh, race-based affirmative action, uh, all of this nonsense, whether it's the uh, sexual uh, gender, transgenderism, and all of the, all of the things Bubble that divide us yeah. in, the, yeah. in the workplace. Because here's the thing. We've always had homosexuals among us. That's part of the human condition. They worked alongside us. We've had friends, you know, that uh, that identified differently. But what they've done is use sexual orientation to divide people as well as race, as well as sex. That should not be the case. And that's part of the message of the adversity of diversity. It creates an adverse situation for many groups. And I argue that the DEI programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I believe that, I mean, I argue also that people who are being discriminated against because of their race or their sexual orientation or their sex need to file lawsuits and they need to know their rights and they need to know how to document the discrimination that's taking place against them. Absolutely. So well said. My goodness. The last, the very last question I want to ask you at about two minutes left in the program. What you have been, people have asked, and I know I've seen this, this in, in, in different articles. Why, why are you so, you know, you're set on pulling up the ladder that, that sort of, that, that people considered that you used to, to get to where you are when this affirmative action was, 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 um, struck down for the universities. Um, why do you, why, why is this important for you to do this? You need to support. Well, first, where I am, I would say that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was the right thing to do, opened doors for people like me, and I took advantage of it. I worked very hard, and uh, and I went to schools that I was qualified to get in. So that's Big. one thing I yeah. would say. But I would also uh, say that I believe God has called me to be a civil rights uh, advocate for all people. And so when I see little white children or uh, or white people shamed and bullied because of the color of their skin, it offends me immensely, especially for the children, because it's wrong to discriminate against any group or any race. And I think that we need to stand united against discrimination. And, and so I do what I do because I want whites and Asians and men uh, and, you know, heterosexuals and Christians to have the rights that they are entitled to because of our Constitution. Not just because somebody is, you know, ramming it down other people's throats and using bully tactics, to be quite honest, in so many of these situations. So I mean, they're trying yeah. to silence us where they're engaged in a great evil of shaming and bullying people because of who and what they are. They always talk about who and what someone is, but they don't have any problem 
with discriminating. Absolutely. And I think that we need to keep reminding them and people need to exercise their rights. And I believe that my book, Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House, published in 2021, and the new book, The Adversity of Diversity, will equip everyone to understand critical race theory, the neo-Marxism that underlines all of this, and also how this diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, can be ended because of the Supreme Court decision. In fact, I would argue that DEI and CRT, based on that Supreme Court decision, it's on life support. DEI is on life support. You can learn how to pull the plug. Perfect. Absolutely. Dr. Carol Swain is my guest right now. Wonderful, wonderful interview with her. Thank you so much, Dr. Swain. The Adversity of Diversity is the book. And as she mentioned, she's got another book out. So please make sure you go there and get her books. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Swain. I really appreciate it. God bless you lots. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me this evening. As I say goodnight and God bless each and every one of you, I'd like to close with the words of the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org. Or call 440-668-4049. Through our FromTheMedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.